Lord, we do indeed pray for the victims of the hurricane. Um, it's uh, troubling that it increased to a Category 5. Um, Lord, we pray that uh, you would protect the people in the Bahamas. Lord, that you would uh, prepare the people along America's uh, east coast for the, the coming storm. And uh, Lord, what a vivid picture the weather patterns can paint, uh, especially when, you, when we think of the coming wrath, Lord, of the, the, the day of judgment. Um, on that day, those storms will seem like mild rain showers. And so, Lord, we're grateful that you are calling people to yourself, that, Lord, just like the people on the East Coast have gotten a warning to prepare, to get ready, uh, Lord, you have issued a call to the world today to say, get ready for the coming day of wrath. And you have provided us an escape. You have provided us a shelter, a safe haven to guard ourselves in, and that is Jesus Christ. So, Lord, as we turn now to this book of Exodus, uh, I pray that we would understand what it is that you're saying through this and that we would see that picture, that, that um, your heart for the nations, your desire for what it is you're accomplishing in the world, uh, we would see it here and understand it well. So Holy Spirit, would you come and help us to see and understand? We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So um, some of you who are paying attention will have noticed we skipped a portion. Are we allowed to do that? Well, if you notice, the sermon series title is The Story of Exodus. So not all of the book of Exodus is story. There are portions like this that are a genealogy. So I'm going to skip it, but I'm going to mention it in the sermon. So you're not getting, you're not getting ripped off. We're going to touch on it. We're just not going to dig into the whole thing. And so uh, just a heads up, this is the first time we've had to do this. We're going to do that again when we get to things like the law. We won't go through every little aspect of the law. We'll kind of summarize those things and draw them together. Um, and then when we get to the tabernacle, we'll talk about those things, but we won't dig into deep into them because we're looking primarily at the story of the book of Exodus. So that's where we're at, um, which kind of brings up what happens is we get that genealogy that we passed over. And then verse 28 is or 28 through 30, the end of chapter six, um, there's some debate did did this happen again? Did God come to Moses again and say, go speak to him? And, and Moses again says, but I'm of uncircumcised lips. Or is this a summary statement kind of tying it back and connecting it? So that's, that's my theory is that Moses is stating this again. After the interruption of the, um, the genealogy, he's calling us back and reminding us, remember where we're at in the story. This is what's happening. So I think that's what's going on. So when we look through this, this section today, We'll look at that introduction a little bit. There's some, some interesting things in there. And then what we'll see is the two events. There's a big part where God talks. And what's my theory about when God talks? That's the most important part. So we're going we're gonna to see that first part where God talks. And what we're here there is God's plan for Pharaoh. He's, God has a plan here. And then the second part is we'll see what God's plan for kingdoms are. So that's, that's the approach. Now, before we dig into this, I've got to do a little theology for us. Um, there's a, an approach to understanding the Bible that's called biblical theology. And, um, and that doesn't mean that anything else that doesn't use that approach is not biblical. What biblical theology says is the Bible is this story from beginning to end. It's God's story. And what we have to do when we looked at any portion of the scripture is ask, where does this fit in the story? How does that connect with the story overall? And so that's what we're going to do this morning. So we'll look at this and we'll see this dialogue with God and we'll see this dialogue with Pharaoh and we'll try to understand them in their context where they happened then but we're also going to ask the question of how does that fit into the big flow of scripture 
How does that how does that connect with all of Scripture? What is it telling us beyond just Moses spoke to Pharaoh? Um, there, there's more to it than that. Um, also, there's another type of theology that's called systematic theology. And what you do with systematic theology is you go through the entire Bible and you look for a topic. For example, uh, the person of Christ. So you go through all of the Bible and you look for all the things that refer to the person of Christ and you bring those together and then you talk about the person of Christ. So there's biblical theology and then systematic. And a good systematic theology is built on a biblical theology. You don't want to just pull these verses out willy-nilly and make them say whatever you want. You want to root it in the Bible. And so we're actually going to touch a little bit into some systematic theology this morning as well. But hopefully if we do this right, we'll start rooted in biblical theology and then see what it says for systematic issues. So let's take a look. So on the day that Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, he said, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh that I, all that I say to you. So this is a restatement. We've already heard God tell Moses this. Last week, we saw the first encounter with Moses and Pharaoh. Do you remember that? Moses goes in and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh's response is, well, they're not working hard enough. They want to go take it easy. We've got to increase their labor. So that was that first one. We're now coming to the second one. So this was restated. And the curious thing is it says, Moses said to the Lord, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Now, as I was studying for this, I had a stack of commentaries, I am not kidding, came up to my knee. It's that high. because Well, first of all, because one of them is about that thick. I mean, most, uh, Exodus is a big book. But as I was going through it, I was like, okay, what does it mean, uncircumcised lips? I don't get, I don't get what that is. And either they didn't say anything about it, or they just went, well, it means he, he doesn't speak well. I was like, well, prove that to me. Show me why that is. Um, so I, I really wrestled with this. What does Moses mean by uncircumcised lips? It's not like you go cut his lips off you know, like a circumcision or something. It must mean something else. Well, there's other body parts that are referred to as circumcised. An uncircumcised heart is something that's referred to repeatedly in the Old Testament. An uncircumcised heart is a heart that is not tuned to God, is not in love with God, is not reaching for God. It's still fixated on fleshly things, on, on earthly things. And so someone could be circumcised of body, but not of heart. And that was one of the complaints that God had against Israel uh, the prophet Jeremiah talks about that. You're circumcised in the flesh only, and that doesn't count. You have to be circumcised in heart. So a, a circumcised, uncircumcised heart is one that's not dedicated to the Lord, that is not in love with the Lord, that is not focused on him. The other thing that we hear that's uncircumcised comes from Acts chapter 7, right at the end of the chapter. Remember Stephen's long discourse? He's recounting the history of Israel, and everybody's hailing an amen until he gets to the application. And he goes, and you killed Jesus. You're a wicked people. He says, you are uncircumcised of ear and uncircumcised of heart. Uncircumcised of ear. What does that mean? Well, the very next thing he says is you're constantly frustrating the Holy Spirit. You're constantly worn against the Holy Spirit. So to be uncircumcised of ear in that context would seem to mean you will not listen to God. Your heart is not dedicated to him. Your ear is not listening to him. So if we take that idea and bring it to Moses and say, what did Moses mean? about having uncircumcised lips. Perhaps what he's saying is, my lips are not prepared to speak your word. I, I, I'm not ready to speak. And what he said previously when he met God at the burning bushes, he said, I'm, I'm slow of tongue and speech. So I'm agreeing with the commentators when they say he just didn't speak well, he had faltering speech. But there's more to it. I think there's a little background to it. So listen to what Moses says at the burning bush, Exodus 4.10. Moses said to the Lord, oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, 
neither in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. So he's, it almost sounds like he's accusing God. Like, Lord, I speak funny, and you haven't fixed it even while we're talking. So maybe that's what he's hinting at with uncircumcised lips, is, Lord, you haven't fixed my mouth. I still speak slow. I'm, I'm, maybe he's bad at Egyptian or something. I don't know, but it's that faltering speech. So he says, I can't. If I go to Pharaoh, he's not going to listen to me. I'm not eloquent. I'm not good at this. So what he's asking the Lord to do is, Lord, would you fix my mouth? Now, God's answer to this is really, this is one that kind of blows your mind. The Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and Aaron shall be your prophet. I got to tell you what, that's not, that's a good interpretation. It's not an accurate translation, because what it says in the, in the um, Hebrew is, I have made you Elohim to Pharaoh. I have made you God, the general interpretation, the general name for God. I have made you God to Pharaoh. So the uh, New American Standard gets close. It puts the word as in italics. I've made you as God. Puts it in italics, tells you that's not in the original text. Um, but like the ESV and the NIV both say like, and the word like is not there. Uh, the King James takes a different approach. It says, I, I shall make thee a God to Pharaoh. And, and I'm not sure that A is really there. It's literally, you shall be a God. So what on earth does that mean? How, it, did Moses suddenly become divine? Well, there is no God except for Yahweh, right? Isn't that what he's been saying? I am the only God. So what on earth does God mean when he looks at a man and says, I have made you God to Pharaoh? Well, context is everything. We got to take this in context. Who does Pharaoh think he is? Pharaoh believes that Egyptian religion said this is a God incarnate. And Egypt is blessed to have this God ruling over them. So this is actually beginning to set up the conflict that the rest of this passage is going to say. This man, Moses, right? And he's not dressed in, in the finery of Egypt. He's a shepherd. He's probably coming in in dirty robes. And, and he's got a beard. And oh my gosh, the Egyptians hate facial hair. And he comes in, and his approach to Pharaoh is going to be, we're equals. I don't fear you, Pharaoh. I'm not under your jurisdiction. So what God is saying is he's going to prove Moses to be equal to Pharaoh. You will be a god to Pharaoh. And I know you can't speak well, so Moses will, or Aaron will be your prophet. So what's going to happen is Moses and Aaron are going to walk in. Moses will say, tell him this, and then Aaron will speak. And so the picture there is, here is a God approaching you, and he has a prophet, and you don't. You're just a God. So let's have a, a, a show of miracles here. And that's exactly what comes up next. So he says, I have made you a God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. Moses is not divine. We'll come back to that in a minute. Um, but as, why don't we deal with it now? Let's, let's deal with it right now, because it's kind of hanging in the air, right? We kind of wrap this up. Did you notice at the end of that section in verse 7, it says, all of a sudden drops in out of nowhere. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron was 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Where did that come from? It, does, it seems to interrupt the story, doesn't it? It's like, oh, they went in and they had this power encounter with Pharaoh. Oh, by the way, he's old. Uh, it, it, it's, it troubles you, but what I think Moses is doing is Moses is going, now wait a minute, I know what I just wrote. I am not a god. I'm 83, I'm 80 years old when I did this. And I'm even older than that now. And that is why I think he included that genealogy. Is he wanted to back up and say, now don't forget who I am. 
God may use me strongly in this sense, but don't deify me. Don't make me more than I am. So the genealogy is really interesting because it starts with Reuben. Why didn't it just start with Levi? Why does he start with Reuben? And then by the time he gets to Levi, he's done. He stops. So we don't even get all 12 tribes. We just get, here's Reuben. Oh, by the way, and Levi, and then Aaron and Moses, and that's it. Well, what I think Moses is doing in picturing that way is, do you remember why it is that Reuben is not the firstborn? He's the firstborn, but he's not given the title, the authority, the power of the firstborn. It's because he went in and slept with his father's concubine. And so Jacob says, that's it. You're cut off. You are not the firstborn. Oh, man, that's kind of a difficult thing to remember, isn't it? And then Levi. Oh, well, Levi, that's great. We've got a leader out of the tribe of Levi. Well, remember what happened with Levi and Simeon? After their sister Dinah's raped, they go through and they use circumcision as a picture, you know, as an excuse. Once everybody's hurt, they go in and slaughter a town. And they're not that great. And that's what they're reminded of. And so by the time it gets to Moses, what we're supposed to remember is this is a flawed man from a flawed family. This is why I think he recaps, uh, recapitulates that thing about, I'm a man of uncircumcised lips. I don't speak well. He's reminding his readers and he's reminding us, this is not God. This is not who you think he is. So even though he said, you will be God to Pharaoh, you will stand in my stead and you will portray Everything I have to say, he's not God. Moses is saying, don't look to me. I'm not your savior. I'm a tool in God's hand and he's our deliverer. So that's, that's what he warns him about. That's why I think the genealogy is there. That's why I think he drops the 80-year-old thing right in the middle of it. Is he wants us to keep him in perspective. He wants us to remember who he is. So here's where it goes. He says, you shall speak all I command you and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel out of the land, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my hosts, my people, the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt by acts of great judgments. The Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. So what we're seeing here is, and I think Moses needs to be reassured this, and as we go into, this is the beginning of the plagues. What will come next is the first of the plagues that's going to strike Egypt. This is the beginning of the signs that God's going to do. We need to have this in our mind, is when we look at God, what he says is, I am not surprised by any of this. I'm telling you now what is going to happen. Remember last week they were upset because, Moses, why'd you go talk to him? Now he's increased our labor. You made it worse. You, you can't be speaking for Yahweh because he made it bad. So what God is reminding Moses here is it's going to be rough for a while, but I am going to work slowly, systematically, and carefully to get you out of Egypt, but it will be the way I intend to do it. So why does God move at the pace he does? Why 12 uh, plagues? Why not 8? Why not 20? I think what it is, is God knows Pharaoh. Remember, we talked about this last week about free will and divine sovereignty. God knows Pharaoh, and he says, if I move Pharaoh too quickly, if I dump on him too fast, he's liable to kill all the Israelites. He could just get frustrated and wipe them all out. And if I move too slowly, he may never let them go. So what God is saying is, I know exactly how I'm going to move Pharaoh. I will move this, I will do this, I will do this, and I've already got it planned out, Moses. It's going to happen this way. This is, what's, this is what is going to happen. This is how it's going to go. So 
what's important for us to remember here is God doesn't lose his temper. It's not like God came to Pharaoh and said, let him go. No, I'm telling you, let him go. No, that's it. Bam, I'm killing your firstborn. God has, has, has got this plan. He's working through these steps methodically to bring Pharaoh to the point where he will do that. And what this, this is where we're looking at the biblical theology, and then we're going to branch a little bit into systematic theology at this point. One of the important things that we learn about God in this picture is God is not prone to temper tantrums. He knows the beginning from the end. He understands exactly what's going to happen, and he's going to move according to his purpose. Even though Pharaoh is sinning in his face, he's going to move according to the way he decided he would move. This is an idea, a concept of God that sometimes is called the impassibility of God. And that doesn't mean that God drives in the fast lane right next to a car and does the same speed so you can't get around him. That would be a sin and God doesn't sin. Okay, maybe not a sin, but it's rude. So that's not what he means by impassibility. It comes from the word passion. And so there's some debate on what it means that God is impassable. That he, he, uh, how does, what does it mean that he has no passion? So the Westminster Confession of Faith, which was written in 1649, says, as it's describing God, it says that he is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, immutable. There's a lot of words in there. What it's saying is that God is a most pure spirit. He is, he is first and foremost, he is a spirit. He's, he doesn't have a physical body. He is without parts. There's not different components to God. There's not this war of, of desires and, and bits and pieces in God. And then it says he is without passions. Well, what does that mean? When you hear the word passion, what do you think? There's, there's a handful of ways it's used. A husband and a wife could be engaged in a passionate kiss. And that passion would be this flaming desire for each other, this burning love for each other. So that might be what passion means. Or another one is somebody has a passion for stamp collecting. If you bump into this person, they're going to tell you about the latest stamp they got. They are just consumed with stamp collecting. They have a passion for it. It doesn't mean they make out with stamps. It means that they just love doing it, right? Or maybe you're familiar with the movie that came out a while ago, The Passion of the Christ. Or maybe if you've been to Germany, you went to a passion play at Oberammergau or something like that. What that's referring to is the sufferings of Christ. And when we talk about the passion plays or the passion of the Christ, that's getting more to the Latin root of that word, which is suffering. So if those are the kind of ballpark meanings of the word passion, I think what we have to do is go back. I'm an originalist here. We have to go back to what the writers of the, the Westminster Confession might have meant when they said passion. If, if they're right in what they're saying, when we need to understand what they mean. Back in the 1600s, there were not a lot of dictionaries. That was kind of a new phenomenon at that time. Uh, the earliest one that I was able to find was one by R Richard Crowdy uh, from 1604 called A Table Alphabetical. It was an early attempt at a, a, um, a dictionary. And his word for passion, he says, suffering or grief. That, that was his definition, was suffering or grief. A little bit later, 1721, uh, Nathaniel Bailey published An Universal Etymological English Dictionary. Um, and I had to look those words up. Um, and his entry for passion says, uh, a transport of mind, anger, suffering, pain, uneasiness of the body. His later edition uh, added a quality that affects the senses and the sensitive appetite, but is soon over, a strong desire inclination. So when we say God is without passions, 
What it sounds like we meant back then was not he is unemotional. What it means is he is not carried away by his emotions. He doesn't have a fit and go, I am just sick of this. I have done that with people I love and just got frustrated with them and, and regret saying something or doing something because I have passions. I, I get these moods that carry me away. Um, why is this important? Why, why does it matter that God is without passions? Um, well, one reason is because he knows the beginning to the end, right? He, he created it all. He knows all. He knows the end of the story from the beginning of the story. He knows how it's all going to go. So is anything in that timeline going to surprise him? Is he going to go, wow, I didn't see that coming. It caught me off guard. Now I'm angry about it. No, he knows that every, everything that's coming. Um, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't trip him up. Um, also, it touches on what's called God's immutability. God does not change. That's one of the things the scripture reassures us is God does not change. And so um, if God can be affected by external forces, it might change him, right? If, if something happens in the world that he didn't know was coming, it could change him. It could change his emotion. It could change his desires. It could change where he goes. And the classic understanding of God is he is immutable. He doesn't change. Um, now, the unfortunate part of this is we wind up with a God who's a big stone in heaven. He doesn't feel anything. He doesn't change. He's immutable. He's just this big rock, and this is it. And that is really not the picture of God in the Bible, is it? He, he's not pictured that way. So here's a quote from uh, Dr. D.A. Carson, um, recently retired from my seminary that I went to. He says, The majority of Christians across the whole history of the church have, infirm, have affirmed the impassibility of God. But sometimes that doctrine has been misunderstood. God becomes impassable, that is, not subject to emotions, borne along by his reason, his knowledge, his sovereignty, but not by his emotions. Thus, we are in danger of thinking of God in almost a stoic sense. But that just won't do. It doesn't answer the biblical picture that we have of him. So um, I was looking at some objections to God with emotions. And one of the authors said, if his creatures can literally make him change his mood by the things they do, then God isn't even truly in control of his own state of mind. If outside influences can force an involuntary change in God's disposition, then what real assurance do we have that his love for us will remain constant? I think it's a fair, a fair charge. I think it's a fair uh, concern, provided that we keep that one word in there, involuntary. If the creation can involuntarily change the Lord, then we're in trouble because who's to say that anything he does is consistent? So do you get the idea we need to be careful here? We need to, to deal with this very carefully. So um, what, we, what we do is when we're looking at God's emotions, um, that's, that's what they mean by passion, his, his emotional state. Um, I think it's helpful to back up and say, well, he's without body and without parts. Because if we understand that, that may help us what we uh, understand, help us unpack the idea that he's without emotions. I promise this is going to come back to Exodus. I promise. <laughs> Hang on. We're almost there. So God is without body, right? He is most perfect spirit. But doesn't he talk about his mighty right arm? Doesn't he say his eyes rove across the earth looking for whom he may serve? Doesn't he say that a sacrifice is a pleasing aroma that rises up into his nostrils? Didn't he tell Moses, you can't see my face, but you can see my back? 
So does that mean God has an arm, a nostril, a back, a face? No, he doesn't have any of that because he's spirit. So then what do we mean by that? That's something that's called, here's your $9 educated, or seminary educated word of the day, anthropomorphisms, anthropomorphisms. It comes from two Greek words, anthropos, which is man, and morphe, which is shape. So the idea is God is speaking to us. He's communicating something about us, about himself using man shapes, human shapes. So when he talks about his mighty right arm, he's talking about his power, his strength, his authority to accomplish what he wants to do in the world. So think of somebody who has a mighty right arm today. I think of uh, the, the Rock Johnson. This guy's ripped, right? He has a mighty right arm. I would not go up against that mighty right arm. It'd probably knock me over. But can that mighty right arm punch a villain on a set in LA and come and punch me in the face at the same time? It's located in one place at one time. It can't be everywhere. Can, can that mighty right arm move a mountain? Nope. Despite what they show on, on you know, the, the big screen when he does something wonderful, he can't move a mountain. His arm is mighty, but it's limited. It's a human right arm. Is God's right arm limited in any way, shape, or form? He has the power. He has the authority. He can be everywhere at once. He is omnipresent. He's everywhere. He can, his, his might, his power can affect changes anywhere in the universe at any time. He isn't restricted to one space. If he decided to move a mountain, does that mountain move? Hail and amen, brother. So when we talk about anthropomorphisms, these, these shapes of humanity that we use to describe God, what we say is not God is less than that. What we're saying is the picture is less than, and God is something much greater, much bigger. So when his eyes rove across the earth looking for whom he may serve, is he actually going one person at a time, going, how's this person? Or is he taking it all in? He, he sees beyond anything we can see. So when we talk about anthropomorphisms, the truth is greater, not less than the reality. Right? The truth of God is greater than our, our conception of it. It's more than that. So let's look at what's his passions. Here's the other really huge word, anthropopathisms. That's a pretty good one. And it's what you would think, anthropos, man, pathos, emotions, feelings, that kind of stuff. So when God talks about his love, he compares his love. He said, would a woman forget her child? I would never forget you. When he says that, think of a woman giving birth to a child and going, oh, I forgot I had a baby, walking away. It breaks you. It's intended to break your heart. This, this infant is so much in need, and the mother just goes, yeah, I don't feel like it, and walks away. That should break your heart. That, that, that idea that a mother could disconnect so severely, it, it should be gut-wrenching. And so when God says, my love for you is like that, is it less than that? It's much more than that. It's much greater than that. It's, it's huge. When, when he talks about his anger, his wrath, is his wrath compared to my wrath? I get angry. I, I was at school yesterday, three-day weekend, and I had to teach. Step one in being mad. <laughs> Step two, I get there at 7 o'clock, and the doors are locked, and they won't unlock. I have to use my key card and go around the other side and get the door unlocked. So now I'm frustrated. Step three in getting mad. I get to the classroom, and I got an email from a student going, are we having class today? The doors are locked. I run down, unlock the doors, run back up, get on the phone to security. Hey, dude, the door's locked. Yeah, they'll unlock at 8. My class starts at 8. Yeah, so we'll wait until 8 and see if they unlock. Okay, my class starts at 8. 
if you don't unlock the doors, my students will be late or go home. Yeah, well, if we, call, if we do anything else, we'll have to call somebody in. Okay, make the phone call, get the doors unlocked. And just frustrated as anything, my wrath soon passed, fortunately, because it was just a minor inconvenience. God's wrath is not tr triggered by those things. I didn't know the building would be locked. Does God not know something is going to happen? Does it catch him out? So God's wrath is not less than mine. It's better than mine. My wrath can be unrighteous. I could be mad at somebody because they have something I want and I don't have, and I could get angry at them. Is that possible with God? Absolutely not. So when we go, but now we're back to Exodus. So if you left, come on back. We're back in Exodus now. So if God is without passions, and we understand it in the 16th or the 17th century meaning, which is not carried away by his emotions, imagine how he understands the universe, how he experiences emotion. Not because it surprises him or it's out, something outside of his control or something that he didn't see, something that he loves so much it delights him. It is a genuine and legitimate response to the events that are happening, but it doesn't change him, it doesn't carry him away, it doesn't make him something different. It's like if you have a child and you go, if you do this, this is gonna happen. Can you see the future there? You know exactly, if you go on this bike ride, you're going to get hurt because you shouldn't ride a bike, a 10-speed bike down a mountain. That's a bad idea. And the child goes, I'm going to do it anyway. And you hurt for them, you ache for them, even though you know what's coming. Does the fact that you know they're going to get injured diminish your pain for them, your love for them? Doesn't at all. The same thing is true with God. God is looking at Pharaoh and he goes, here's what's going to happen. I want Pharaoh to let you go. I know how stubborn and obstinate Pharaoh is. I know the man thinks he's a god. And I know that to get you out, I'm going to have to prove him wrong on every count. And it's going to be bad. Things are going to go really rough. In the end, I will win. Does that mean that God is not emotional about those things? He doesn't feel anything? I think that's a, diminu a diminution, diminution. I think it lessens his emotional state to he's a rock in heaven and he doesn't feel or do anything because he knows it from the beginning to the end. I think it's a legitimate response to go, I'm really frustrated with Pharaoh, but I know why. So we don't have to worry here about God just flying off the handle during this. The events that are going to come are going to get progressively worse and worse. The, the, the judgments that are going to fall on Egypt are going to get harder and harder. And what we need to remember here is this is not God flying off the handle. This is not God going, I have lost it with you, man. I am, I am done. This is God saying, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this. That's important for us to remember, too. Because as we look at the course of history, we see the church rise in places, and we see persecution rise, and we see the gospel flourish, and then we see apostasy come in and, and lead people away. And we can look at that and get really frustrated and go, why, Lord? Why is that going on? We get upset. And God's going, I know. I've seen it from the beginning to the end. I know the end of the story. It's frustrating now, but where it's going to lead is going to be something that I had desired all along. So we need to remember God is without passions. He is not going to fly off the handle at you if you do something wrong. He is not going to suddenly love you a whole bunch better because you did a Bible study this morning. He knows you from beginning to end, and he has committed in his covenant to be with you, period. And so it's important for us to understand as he explains to Moses, as Moses is getting ready to go into Pharaoh, this is what's going to happen, and it is still under my control, Moses. Your lips are under my control. Pharaoh is under my control. Egypt is under my control. Now let's go in and do this. So that's, that's God's 
passion, his, his emotions. This is God's purpose for Pharaoh. He's going to work it out. He's going to make this happen. So the next part of the story is what happened. Moses and, and uh, Aaron go in. And what we're going to see here is God's purpose for uh, God's kingdom and, God, and Pharaoh's kingdom. They're going to come into conflict here. So then Moses, uh, the Lord said to Moses, when Pharaoh says, prove yourself by working a miracle. If you're a God to me, then work a miracle. And God said, uh, Moses says, okay, um, here's what's going to happen. God has given me this miracle to do before you. And he reminds him, take your staff, tell Aaron to take his staff and cast it down before Pharaoh and it'll become a serpent. Time out. Aaron's staff? The last time this happened was at the burning bush and it was Moses' staff. So is this a different staff? First of all, does it matter? You would be surprised how many, page, how many uh, lines of ink are spilled over this question. I think there's a pretty straightforward answer. A, it doesn't matter. B, Moses had a staff because he was a shepherd. You needed the staff out there to chase off bad things to get sheep to behave. What's Aaron's occupation at that same time? He's a slave. He's making bricks. Do you think he had a staff to do that? Probably not. That would be a threat to the, that might be considered a threat to the Egyptians. He's got something he could beat us up with. So it's entirely possible that Moses gave Aaron his staff and said, you're going to need this. And now it's Aaron's staff. So I, enough of that. The point is Aaron's got a staff and he's going to throw it down before Pharaoh. So when Pharaoh demands a sign, use the first sign I gave you. Throw the staff down. So Moses and Aaron did what the Lord had commanded, and Aaron cast his staff down before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. So they, it, Moses really summarizes that, doesn't he? He doesn't even have Pharaoh quoted, just he shows up and he, he does the sign. Do you remember what that sign represented back when we were at the burning bush? The, 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 the serpent there, um, the one at the burning bush was called a nekash, which could be just a generic word for snakes, serpents in general, anything like that. The word here is tanim, which is a general term for reptiles. And in Hebrew taxonomy, a snake is a reptile. It's in there. So it's no big deal, right? Um, different word. I don't think it really means much, except at the burning bush, we said that that was probably a cobra or at least some venomous snake, because when Moses threw it down and it turned into a snake, he jumped back. It scared him. It could be that the miracle scared him. It might really be because, hey, he knew what snakes were, and he was afraid of it. And we said at the time that what was the symbol of Pharaoh's authority, his power, his right to rule? On his headdress, there was a reared-up snake, a cobra. And so what we said was this is a picture of God throwing down his, his right to rule, and then when Moses picks it up, he's told to pick it up by the tail, the most dangerous end of that serpent. And so Moses is going to make himself super vulnerable to this, and it's not going to be able to do anything. It won't strike. So when they do it in front of Pharaoh, I think what's going on is that when they throw it down, it's that general term for reptile again. He's not being specific, but it turns into a serpent before him. Look at it from Pharaoh's point of view for a second. You have just this, this common... Shepherd, Ugh. we hate shepherds. He's hairy. He's probably dirty. He came in and he took the symbol of my authority and he's got it on the ground. It's under his control. It's under his power. It would be like walking into the Oval Office, throwing your shoe down and having it turn into a, a bald eagle, which can't get off the ground. It's just kind of flopping around. That's the symbol of his authority. 
And so he's, he's looking at Moses and he's saying, this Moses is a God to me, and now he's just done this, this miracle, which diminishes my authority. He thinks he's in control of my authority to rule. Oh, I don't think so. So what he does is he calls the uh, wise men and the magicians and the, the sorcerers of Egypt. And he says, gentlemen, come in and do your thing. So the magicians of Egypt come in and it says, and so they did the same by their secret acts. So number of issues raised here. First of all, did they turn their staffs into snakes? Or was it a sleight of hand? They had a rubber snake up their sleeve and, and they went, presto, and the rubber snake came out. Ha! I don't think so. I think we're looking at it from a, a modernist mindset. That's how we do magic today. But don't forget, this was before Christ. So this could be that a demon has given them the special power to do this. Because Paul tells us that what they worship, they worship demons when they worship these false gods. So a demon could have done this in order to authenticate his power, to make, his, make these people continue to want to worship that false god. So that's an entire, uh, entirely a possible thing. Now, next step. How did Moses turn, how did Aaron, I guess, turn that, that staff into a snake? Clunk. He just threw it down, blap, and it's a snake. What do these guys have to do? They have to use their secret arts. They come in and they have an incantation and they've got some charms and they sprinkle some magic dust and they have to do this work to make it happen and then the demon answers and goes, okay, it's a snake. So which one, even in the act of doing it, which one has demonstrated more power and authority? Aaron. He just goes, drop the stick and it's a snake. So in the battle between God and Pharaoh, God's winning this battle so far, but it gets even worse. It gets even well, worse for them, better for us. Uh, each man cast down his staff and they became a serpent, but Aaron's staff swallowed their staffs. So in the battle, who won? God beat them. He's like, okay, cool. So you made a serpent. Watch this. And it just swallows them up, gobbles them right up. Uh, one of the commentators was talking about the uh, cannibalistic nature of snakes. Anybody who's a, who's a herpetologist who keeps snakes, they tend to eat each other apparently. Um, so this isn't surprising that it was swallowed up. Now think about this for a second. You got a snake and it's going to swallow two or three snakes? How is that possible? Folks, this is a miracle. And that's how it's possible. If we think about it in, in just uh, materialistic terms, it's really hard to understand. If we think about it as this is a conflict between God and Pharaoh, yeah, it's a miracle, and it swallowed him up, and it won, period, end of discussion. So the end is, still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Well, it didn't work. Now, when I said God's kingdom and Pharaoh's kingdom, we need to understand a little bit about God's kingdom. God did not destroy Egypt, did he? Even at the end of the plagues, Egypt was still around. Egypt's still around to today. So God didn't wipe them out. He didn't say, your kingdom conflicted with my kingdom, it's gone. As a matter of fact, I don't think God wipes kingdoms out in the, in the grand scheme of things. Kingdoms rise and fall. We don't have an Assyrian kingdom or a Babylonian kingdom now, but he doesn't obliterate the concept, the, the, the category of kingdom, does he? That snake didn't, didn't bite them and kill them. It swallowed them. It gobbled them up. And so that's kind of what I think is going on here is God is picturing for us where the end of the story is going to go, which is not obliterating the concept of a kingdom, but swallowing them up. 
So for example, in Isaiah 19, God says, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. So is he going to just erase Egypt? Is he going to chase them off? Is he going to cut them off forever? No, they become my people. That's that snake swallowing those other snakes. They get rolled into God's kingdom. So what's up with kingdoms then? What's God's purpose in the story for a kingdom? Well, it starts in Genesis chapter 10 at the Tower of Babel, doesn't it? God's command to, Moses, or to Noah after the flood was go out and fill the earth, populate it all. And what happened is they got as far as the plains of Shinar, which wasn't too terribly far away, and they went, yeah, this is good enough. And they build a tower. And so God says, that's not what I said. And he comes down and he strikes them. So now everybody has got a different language. They can't communicate anymore. And that drives them apart. That's what it says in the Bible. That's when the earth was divided. That's when people groups were formed and they split up and they spread out. And then the table of nations after that shows where everybody went. So God had a purpose in doing that. Um, was it so that human, humankind wouldn't get too big for their britches? Oh, yeah, that's part of it. But there's more to be said about that idea of God creating these nations, set, spreading everybody out. Um, in Acts chapter 17, you remember Paul went to the, uh, um, the uh, speaking with the philosophers, and he's on Mars Hill, and he's, he begins to explain things. He says, and God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. Tower of Babel. He's, he made from one man, from Adam through Noah, he makes one man for, uh, he makes uh, out of one man a nation, uh, every nation that's going to fill the face of the earth. Why? Well, it continues on. He says, having determined their allotted periods and their boundaries. So he created them. He said, you're going you're to rise up and you're going to rule for this way. And then you're going to go over here and you're going to be over there. That they may seek God. So when God created the nations, when he split everybody up at the Tower of Babel, it wasn't out of frustration back to his impassibility. It wasn't just a, a fit of anger. He said, no, you guys aren't doing this right. You need to split up so that you may seek me. If you form a tower, if you form your own society and you're one, one people, you'll think you're sufficient and you won't seek anything else. You'll think you've got it all. So I'm going to spread you out so that you will seek me. You each will get a piece of the truth. You'll each get a portion of this, but you'll all seek after me. So he says that he, he did that, that they may seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's not actually far from each one of us. So does God have a purpose in kingdoms? Does he have a purpose in nations? He has a divine purpose in nations that they may seek him, that they may find him, that they may be swallowed up by that other one, that they may roll in, not together under man's kingdom, but under God's kingdom. So in Revelation eleven fifteen, it says the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there was a loud voice in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. We get the end of the story. The kingdom of the world, all the kingdoms in the world roll into his. Jesus is now, the, uh, the, the kingdom of God now incorporates all of those other kingdoms. They have become the kingdom of our God and our Christ. Not they cease to become or cease to be. They have become something else. The serpent swallows the other serpents. They get rolled into that. And then the glorious, beautiful picture at the end, the, the, the end of the story, Revelation 21. This new Jerusalem has descended from heaven, this beautiful city. It's, it's described as the bridegroom of God. It comes down from heaven, made perfect. He goes through a long description of everything that's there. Not everything, but a good description of what's going on. And this is how he ends it. He says, 
By its light the nations shall walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day. There will no longer be a night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So do you get that picture? At the end, the new Jerusalem is here, and the nations bring in their glory. The nations are still there. The kings of the earth bring in their glory. They're still there. But the serpent has swallowed the others. That symbol of authority now rolls into God. And that's why Jesus, God is described, especially like, there's a bunch of these I could have quoted, but Deuteronomy 10, 17, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God. He is the Lord of lords. There are other lords. He is the most lordly Lord. He is the Lord over all those other lords. Jesus is the king of kings. There are other kings, but he is the most kingly king. He is the king that is over top of all those other kings. He is the God of gods. There are others who consider themselves gods, lesser beings, not divine, but he is the God of all of those. So look at that now and look at what he's saying to Pharaoh. You will be a God to Pharaoh. You will come in and you will speak because I am the God of gods. I'm over all other gods. And you will show him his authority, his symbol of his authority cast down, slithering on the ground because I am the, the Lord of lords. And then when he replicates that, it's going to swallow all of those. Why? Because I am the king of kings. It all rolls back into him. So when we get to the end of this and we look and Pharaoh still, his heart is hardened and he still won't listen to them. Moses ends that as the Lord had said. As the Lord had said. God is not surprised by any of this. He is not upset about this. He is not going to fly off the handle at Pharaoh and make him blink out of existence. This is going according to God's plan. This is what I have decided would happen. Well, why, God? Why not just make him change? Why not soften his heart and just, you know, change him in an instant? Well, we talked about that last week with God's sovereignty and man's free will. He doesn't want robots. That would just not be glorious to have suddenly Pharaoh turn into a robot and be reprogrammed and go, well, I don't want to let him go, but I have to because I, the coding says I must. So that, that's not what God wants. He's going to work within these, these human beings with their free will, bound by their nature, and he's going to accomplish his purposes. And it's important we remember, he's not doing it out of, out of anger. He's not being surprised by it. He's not caught off guard by it. He is sovereign over all these things. So now consider Jesus for a moment. It was Jesus, Jesus parting words to his disciples. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. King of kings, Lord of lords, God of gods. And lo, I am with you until the end of the age. What we get in Exodus is a microcosm. It's a small snapshot of what God is going to accomplish throughout history. That's why the Exodus is so important to biblical theology. It echoes throughout the Bible. Is it is a precursor. It's, it's a, a miniature version of what God is going to accomplish throughout the history of the world. So when we go through the Exodus, when we go through the plagues and all of these things, that's what this is picturing. God at work. God has a plan. God is not being caught off guard. Think you can walk with that? Are your lips uncircumcised? Maybe. Maybe you don't talk good neither. But you know what? Is God able to work with that? Is he able to accomplish things? 
He's still in charge. It's the same God doing the same thing. But he's doing it instead of in Egypt, he's doing it on a large scale. Instead of just the tribes of Israel, he's doing it with the nations as he calls people to himself. God is going to deliver us. He's going to get us out of Egypt. He's going to get us out of slavery. It's just a, a ways to go before we get there. So let's close in prayer. Lord, we confess you to be King of kings and Lord of lords, and we acknowledge, Lord, that you have a plan and a purpose, and you're accomplishing great things. Would you give us the faith to trust you in the midst of this? Lord, you have given us great and precious promises. You have sealed your covenant in so many ways, and the new covenant sealed in the blood of your Son. What greater oath could you give us that you will accomplish these things, that we are safe and secure? So, Lord, as the trials come, as the the plagues increase, as we get denied straw to make bricks, Lord, we pray that you would give us faith and strength to walk with these things, to trust in our great deliverer, the one who's greater than Moses, the one who's greater than David, the one who actually will accomplish our deliverance, not just from the foes we can see, but even the ones that we can't understand. Lord, help us to look to and trust in our great Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask in his name. Amen.